have you ever um, given any consideration to um, the sins of people who are believers in Jesus Christ? And what I mean by that, is there a difference between a believer who sins and a non-believer who sins? Is there a difference there? I think there is, and let me tell you why. I think it's a worse thing for a believer to sin. And, and why would I say that? Well, let me just put it this way. <clears throat> it's not just that as a, as a believer in Christ, we sin and break the commandments of God. When, when we sin, we also break the heart of God. Have you thought of that? You're not just breaking the commandments. You're breaking the heart of God. Uh, it, it's not just a servant who disobeys a master. It's, just, it's not just the rebellion of a citizen against a king. But it really is a child reacting against a loving father. And that's the picture we see here in, in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a, is, is a prophet. In fact, he's the last of the minor prophets. Uh, Malachi is the last book in our English Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. In fact, it was the last book that was written in that Old Testament era. And it was the last book that was accepted into the, the, uh, the canon. That is the collection of books that were recognized as authoritative and placed into the, what we know as the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, look with me in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. It's there in your notes. It's here on the screen as well. But we're going to be looking at uh, this message of Malachi. And, and what he's doing, he's talking to people who are God's people. And he's telling them, you are sinning against God. And there are sins against our Heavenly Father bring grief to his heart. So Malachi 1 and verse 1 says this, This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. <clears throat> now, the name Malachi means my messenger. And that's very appropriate because that's what Malachi was. Like the other prophets, he is a messenger from God to the people of that day and time. And so here in this final book of the Old Testament, we see Malachi, and he's called on to really perform a very difficult and very dangerous task. That is, the task of rebuking God's people for the sins that they were committing against God and for calling them to return to God. Uh, and in fact, the difficulty that Malachi faced is really seen in, the very, in this very first verse. Uh, the fourth word here in the New Living Translation is the word message. But that is a Hebrew word that in reality means a burden. So this is the burden that Malachi had from God to deliver to the people. Uh, that word burden is used by Nahum and, and also Habakkuk to describe their prophetic ministry of proclaiming the message of God to the people. So it's a deeply felt message that Malachi is bringing to the people about the sinfulness in their lives. 
Now, let me set the, the, the context, the historical context for you. If you remember, in 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great <clears throat> issued the proclamation that allowed the Jewish people to return from exile in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Well, probably about 50,000 people took him up on that offer and made their way back to Jerusalem, walking 900 miles by foot. It would have taken them about four months to get back there, but they, they got back there, and then <coughs> they began the task of rebuilding the temple. It took a number of years to rebuild it. They were delayed along the way, but finally in 515 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. Then we see in about 458 uh, uh, B.C., uh, Ezra, the priest, makes his way from Babylon to Jerusalem and carries out a ministry there. And then again in 445, Nehemiah comes. And for 12 years, Nehemiah is the appointed governor of the district of Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he, he sets about and helps them to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem and so forth. After those 12 years, Nehemiah goes back to Babylon where he is the, the cupbearer to the king of Persia. But then he makes a second trip back to Jerusalem. Well, while Nehemiah is gone in that, that sojourn back to, to Babylon, things in Jerusalem begin to fall apart. And so when he returns, he finds the conditions are terrible. And so he takes some very drastic measures to reform the situation in Jerusalem. I was looking just this morning uh, in those last chapters of Nehemiah, and this guy went ballistic on them. When he came back and he saw the sins of the people, it talks about the fact that he was throwing stuff out of a storeroom in the temple, that he was raging and going on. And he says, I beat some and I pulled the hair of others. I mean, he was a madman. Because the people had fallen into sin, and he took it out physically and literally. Uh, you and I probably would have him locked up today, wouldn't we? You know, But that was what was going on. So the, the problem in Jerusalem was that the people were experiencing some major problems. Poor crops were, were abounding. There was a faltering economy. The, the people were violating uh, God's laws concerning intermarriage with, uh, with pagan uh, people. The priests were defiling themselves and their work in the temple. There was oppression of the poor. They weren't supporting the temple. And there was a, just a general disdain of religion throughout the land. So this was a low time spiritually for, the, for the, the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. And they needed to hear a word from the Lord. And that's where Malachi comes in. I honestly think that in our day and time, that we are in a low point spiritually as a nation, as a world, as a church, as people. And I think we also need to hear a word from the Lord. Um, so let's see what God might say through Malachi to, to the Jewish people, but let's see what he says to us as well. Uh, and Malachi in this book takes a really a wise approach in, in dress, addressing those people in Jerusalem. Uh, the structure of the book kind of uh, follows a, a pattern, and it's very prominent. You'll see this, that Malachi is anticipating the objections, the complaints of the people. He knows what they're going to say. So his pattern is this. God says this to you, but you say this. 
In other words, you say, and then he'll list their complaint, whatever it is. We're going to see that in there. Uh, If you really think about it, the Old Testament prophets probably were the only ones who really had a grip on reality in those days. And they, they said it like it was. They said, these are the problems that are going on. They saw it realistically. And so as a result of that, they were often very unpopular. So let's look. What are the sins of God's people that Malachi condemned? And um, are these sins that have crept into our own life? Let's look. There are six sins that Malachi lists here. Sin number one is questioning God's love. Questioning God's love. That begins there in Malachi chapter 1 and first part of verse 2. I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? I wonder how often we're guilty of questioning God's love for us. How often do we say, oh, God couldn't love me. I'm just, my life's too much of a mess. I'm I'm too much of a sinner. How could God love me? There's no way he could do it. I'm not important in God's eyes. Why would he even bother with me? I've, I've done too much wrong. God certainly doesn't love me. Well, that's what the Jewish people were doing. They looked at the mess that their lives were in, and they asked the same question. How could God love us? Where is the demonstration of God's love? And so Malachi gives them two very solid reasons of how God could love them, how God found, uh, really gave them proof of God's love for them. First of all, God loved them by declaring his love to them. He says, I have always loved you. Um, Perhaps the people needed to be reminded of that, that God has always loved them. And maybe uh, Haggai, maybe Uh, you know, Nehemiah or Ezra would refer back to those words that God spoke through Moses back when on the eve when they were just about to go into the promised land. And God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 7, he says, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from slavery and from the oppressive hand of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commandments. I think we all need to be reminded from time to time of the amazing fact that God loves us. I mean, think about it. When Jesus Christ stretched out his arms on the cross, he says, this is how much I love you. I love you so much that I would rather die than live without you. That's the love that God has for us. Uh, Paul said it this way in the book of Romans. He says, but God showed his great love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. See, it's not because you deserve whatever God has given to you. It's not that at all. Did you notice the words, while we were yet sinners? It's not because you're such a great, great thing. It's because he loved us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. 
So the first reason that we know that God loves us is because he declares that to us. Second, Malachi told the people that God's love for you is seen in the fact that you are chosen to be his. So God loved them by choosing them to be his. Chose them to be his. The last part of verse 2 there in Malachi 1. And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Now, we're talking here about God's electing grace. God's electing grace. You remember that there were two brothers. They were twins, uh, you know, fraternal twins, I guess what you'd call them, because they didn't look alike, that's for sure. So they were both born, but Esau was the older of the two brothers. And so by rights, he should have gotten the inheritance. He should have gotten the blessing. But that didn't occur. God gave the blessing to Jacob, the younger of the, of the brothers. And so Paul, talking about this in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 11, says this, but before they were born, he's talking about Jacob and Esau here, before they had done anything good or bad, she, and that's Rachel, their mother, she received a message from the Lord. This message shows that God chooses people according to their own purposes. He calls people, <coughs> but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scripture, I have loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. So Paul there in Romans is quoting out of Malachi. Folks, what I want us to understand is that in Jesus Christ, God has chosen you to be his sons, to be his daughters. You've been chosen by God, and that chosen alone ought to point to that incredible fact of God's never-ending love for you, that you're chosen to be His own. And so don't doubt it. Don't, Don't fall into that sin of doubting God's love for you. That's what the people in Malachi's day had done. They doubted God's love. Don't go there. God loves you, and He demonstrated that love through the greatest gift that was ever given, And that was his son on your behalf on the cross. The second sin of the people was they dishonored God's name. They were dishonoring God's name. Now, here Malachi is now going to direct his message specifically to the priests in the land. And remember, the priests were God's representatives before the people. And they were to live holy lives as an example to the people. But instead, these priests in Malachi's day were guilty of breaking the very law that they were to be teaching to the people. Um, and, and in that way, um, they, they dishonored God's name. They were serving God in ways that were disgraceful and dishonoring to the name of the Lord. Verse 6 of Malachi 1. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Eight times in this, these verses, verses 6 through 9, the word name is, God says, my name. And, and, and the name of God refers to his character. It refers to his reputation. And so here are these priests, and they were supposed to honor God's name. 
And instead, they were disgracing that name before the people. God says, you know, a son honors his father, a, a servant honors his master, but you're doing neither of these things. There's no honor. Instead, there was only contempt that they were giving toward God. <clears throat> now, we need to be reminded that, you know what, Christians, Christians, we are priests unto God. We have been called a kingdom of priests. I, Peter, Peter talks about that in his epistle that we're a kingdom of priests unto God. And so therefore, we're to show the world around us God. They ought to see God in us. We're, our task is to make the name of God famous throughout the land. But how are we doing that? I mean, how, how are we doing that? Do we find ourselves sometimes bringing dishonor to the very name of God? How, how in, the, in, in Malachi's day, how did they dishonor God? How are we doing it in our day? Let's look at these two, two thoughts. <clears throat> First of all, they dishonored God through a, sub, a substandard offerings. They dishonored God through substandard offerings. Picking up reading in verse 7. You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled those sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of Heaven's army. You see, <clears throat> excuse me, the Mosaic law was very plain that they were to give the best of their flocks. They were to give uh, bulls or sheep or goats that didn't have any defect whatsoever. And yet here are the people offering just the leftovers, the worst of the worst, the, the cripple, the blind animals or whatever. They were, to give, they were supposed to give the best, and instead they were giving the leftovers. How do we do that? Do you ever find yourself just giving God the leftovers of your life? We come to worship, and maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're, you're thinking about this, that, or the other, an argument you had you know, before you left the house, or what you're going to be doing this afternoon. And, and so your singing, your worship before the Lord is just kind of half-hearted. Are you giving God the leftovers? Or in your serving, well, if I have time, I'll get around to doing something at the church, but if I don't have time, eh, it's no big deal. Are we, are we dishonoring God's name? through the way in which we live? Are we giving God the best? Or are we just giving Him leftovers of our life? We need to ask ourselves that question. I mean, how do we really honor God through what we're doing? A second way in which they dishonored God's name was through disobeying God's law. They were dishonoring God through disobeying God's law. Look at, at verses 7 and 8 again. Um, Really, verse 9 says, the word of the Lord, uh, well, let me get it right here. This is chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. That's where I got messed up. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says, the words of the priest's lips should preserve knowledge, and people should go to him for instruction. For the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's army. But you priests have left God's path. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of Heaven's army. Um, they were ignoring God's commandments. They were, they were 
breaking those commandments that they should be teaching the people. And instead, the way they were living, the way they were teaching was causing a stumbling block for the people of that land, of that, of that day and, and that time. They had corrupted the, the relationship through, that God had given through those, those commandments. I wonder if with us, how are we doing in following God's commands in our life? I mean, which of the commandments have we just kind of in our society we've chosen to ignore? In our personal lives, what is it that we're just kind of, oh, you know, these, these things that God says in his word, uh, they just don't fit our society, our culture anymore. Maybe they're outdated. Maybe we don't need to go that way anymore because, you know, they just don't fit with today's uh, world in which we live. Talking about things like sexual conduct. And think, talking about things, our entertainment. What is it we're watching? What is it we're listening to? What is it we're reading? Uh, are we following God's path in how we use our money and how we choose our friends in, in, in things like our attitude toward material things? Is God's command for us to live holy lives? Have we just kind of dismissed that and we're just thinking we'll just go our own way? Uh, that's the sin, folks, of dishonoring God's name. I mean, what do you think God thinks when he looks at our lifestyles? Are we dishonoring his name before the world? Third sin, the, the sin number three, was violating God's covenant. Violating God's covenant. <clears throat> Verse 10 of the second chapter. Are we not all children of the same Father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? And, and the covenant there was that relationship that God had entered into with His people, that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will do this for you. You will be obedient to me. Well, God's covenant was violated, first of all, through unequally yoked marriages that they were entering into. Unequally yoked marriages. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah had defiled the, the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. You see, very, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel, God had given very specific instructions to the people that they were not to marry into people who participated in idolatry, that worshipped other gods. And the reason for this was <clears throat> that God knew that they would be tempted, the Israelites would be tempted to be pulled into that idolatry. And sure enough, time and time and time again, they intermarried with other nations, and time and time and time again, they were pulled into idolatry. And it brought down the nation. They were falling into that, into that sin of idolatry. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, that same injunction is given by the Apostle Paul when he talks about uh, that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Um, we're not to do that. It's interesting to me in my 51, 52 years of ministry, time and time and time again, I have counseled with couples where one is a, one partner is a, is an unbeliever and the other is a believer and i don't know of a single instance in all of those times when a when there wasn't a part of their problem they were facing 
is that one was a believer and one wasn't. It always leads to problems in marriage. There's difficulty there. See, God's design for marriage is for it to be between two mind, uh, like-minded people, two believers, uh, because that's God's design. And when we violate that, that relationship always suffers. It just does. I, I can't explain why, but it does. So they were unequally yoked with the pagans in the land. And then the second thing that Malachi talks to them about is that God's covenant is violated through dismissing their marriage vows, dismissing marital vows. Look at verse 13. <coughs> Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasures. In other words, we're doing all this for God and God isn't blessing us. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Look what Malachi said. I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. You have been unfaithful to her, though she has remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your hearts. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, this section is pretty self-explanatory. God hates divorce because it goes against his design for marriage, that of being one woman and one man freely and totally committed to each other for life. But notice in verse 16, that, that word that's used to describe the result of divorce. It's that word cruelty. Cruelty, and, and especially when there is infidelity involved. Folks, nothing is more cruel in the treatment of your wife or in the treatment of your husband, than to be unfaithful to your marriage vows to them. That's cruelty. That's what God says here. Uh, you're, you're, or you're treating your marriage vows as if they're nothing at all. If they, you know, it's just nothing. Think about it. Nothing is more cruel to children in a marriage than divorce. That's why God hates divorce. Unfortunately, folks, among Christians today in America... The divorce rate among Christians is about the same as the divorce rate among non-Christians. We're violating God's covenant here. It's a sin of God's people. The fourth sin is that of twisting God's justice. Twisting God's justice. <coughs> Malachi 2 verse 17. You have wearied the, wor uh, the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, the people in Malachi's day had wearied God with their skeptical and their cynical words of complaint. They were just always complaining. I mean, we've come back to the land, man. We've rebuilt the temple. We've restored worship in the temple. And look at the difficulties we're experiencing. Where is God's blessings? There's nothing going on. Where are the blessings that you've promised us through all the prophets? 
See, the problem is they had forgotten the terms of the covenant. God's covenant was, I will love you and I will, you will be my people if you obey. I mean, starting in Deuteronomy and then in Chronicles, God spoke and said, you do this and I will do this for you. You don't do this, I will withhold blessings. Your crops will die, the rain won't, won't come. On and on again, it was always tied into obedience to God's word. But here are the people, they've forgotten the terms of the covenant and the conditions that were laid down throughout the, the Old Testament. That if the people obeyed God's law, God would bless them. But they were divorcing their wives. They were marrying pagan women. They were offering uh, uh, defiled sacrifices. They were robbing God of, of tithes and offerings. They were complaining about having to serve uh, the Lord. And so for God to bless them when they were doing all that would be that God was approving of their sin. See, the Jews didn't need justice. They thought they did, but they didn't need justice. They needed God's mercy. They needed to return to God. And so Malachi answers the question about where is God's justice by pointing to two coming messengers of God who would bring true judgment. So in Malachi chapter 3, the very first part of verse 1, Malachi says this, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about John the baptizer. Yeah, that he's coming to point to the answer, the real answer to injustice, the one who is coming, God's Messiah. And so then beginning in the last part of verse 1, we shift to see here is God's Messiah who's coming. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that, that refines metal or like strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. So here is Malachi, and he prophesies, first of all, about the, the first coming of God's Messiah in Jesus Christ, in his birth in Bethlehem's manger. But then he shift gear, shifts gears, and he begins talking about the Lord coming in his second coming. And he's coming as a judge, and, and he's going to prove that God is just by purifying the people and, and judging rebellious sinners. See, Jesus Christ here is the messenger of the covenant, and he fulfilled all the demands of covenant in his life. He, he suffered the penalties of death, and then he rose from the dead. And when he did that, he ushered in the new covenant of grace. And so what we see is all those Old Testament covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant to Abraham, the covenant to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, the covenant that was given to, to David, all of those find their, their fulfillment, all of those point to Jesus Christ and his marvelous work of redemption. So when Christ comes, God's justice will be complete. Because he's the one who's going to remove the barriers of sin between God and mankind. Sin number five then was robbing God's storehouse. <clears throat> robbing God's storehouse. Now, this is a familiar passage. Um, but it's one that probably convicts a lot of us. 
Uh, and maybe as we look at this, you've never maybe thought of the fact that when you disobey God's directions about tithing to the Lord, that you're actually robbing God. But that's the word that Malachi uses here, robbing God. Look at verse 6 and following. He says, I am the Lord, I do not change. That is why your descendant, you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's army. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? In other words, these people were clueless as to how they were violating God's, God's uh, laws. Verse 8, should people cheat, and, and that's the New Living Translation, the other translations have the word rob there. Should people cheat or rob God? Yet you have cheated me. You have said, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You're under a curse for the whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Prove me. Put me to the test. <coughs> now the word tithe there is, uh, come, really comes from a Greek word, I mean uh, from a Hebrew word that means ten. And a tithe is simply 10% of the grain that's harvested or the fruit that's harvested or the animals that are raised or the money that, that a person has. And these were to be brought to the temple. And this was the problem in Malachi's day. They were to be brought to the temple to meet the needs of the priests and their families. Uh, there were special storage rooms in Solomon's temple that was in this rebuilt temple. It was be later in, in Herod's temple. Storerooms that were, that were uh, built into the temple where the grain and the produce and the money could be stored that the people brought to God as, as their tithe. But here in Nehemiah's day, here in Malachi's day, the people had stopped doing that. Uh, and And... As a result, those storerooms were, were almost empty. You know, tithing is an act of worship that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. Uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek because he recognized that Melchizedek was a representative of God. You look in Genesis chapter 28, and Jacob vowed that he would give the tithes to the Lord. So what you see is that tithing predates the law of Moses. People say, well, tithing, that's, that's the law. But it predates the law of Moses. Um, tithing was just officially incorporated into the worship of the nation of Israel at that time and, and place. But in bringing those tithes and those offerings, the people were doing two things. One, they were helping support the priests so that they could do the work of ministry in the temple. But secondly, they were giving thanks to God for his bountiful provision on their lives. And you see, over the centuries, many of the Jews fell into at least one of two different errors when it came to, came to giving the tithe to, to the Lord. First of all, there were those legalists who obeyed the law so scrupulously that, you know, they were like the Pharisees. They tithed even the minute garden herbs that they grew. 
And at the same time, they were ignoring a lot of the other things that they were need to be doing in their life in the way of obedience toward God. Or there was a second group that was just neglecting the tithe. And, and as a result of that, by disobeying uh, God, they deprived the temple ministry of what was going on. And so in the days of Malachi, some of the priests were not getting what they needed to support their families. And so they had to leave the temple service and go out and, and cultivate the land and grow food because they weren't getting the tithe that was given to them. And so even though, though the people had vowed, we'll bring the tithes, they hadn't done it. And the storehouses were empty. And so that's what Malachi is, is talking about here. Folks, you and I know that God owns everything. It all belongs to him. All wealth is his. He gives it to us as a stewardship to take care of for, for him. Uh, he, he doesn't need anything that we bring to him. And yet he asks us to do it out of worship toward him. And when we obey his word and, and we bring our gifts as worship, we do it with grateful hearts. And you know what it does? It pleases God. Uh, I hear from time to time uh, people who will say, well, you know what? We're in the New Testament era. We're no longer under the law. So therefore tithing really doesn't apply to us because that was the law and we're under grace. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. Um, first of all, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. When he talks about those Pharisees who were tithing the minute minutiae of their herb garden, he, he says this in Matthew 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you, caref you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now listen to this. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. So Jesus endorses tithing for his followers. But a second thought. <clears throat> um, you know, over in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about that we're to practice grace-giving which is certainly beyond just 10%. And, and think about it. Okay, so we're under grace. Uh, yes, we are under grace. But if believers under law were to give 10%, isn't that where we under grace ought to at least start? They were robbing God's temple of the tithe. The last sin is that of snubbing God's service. Verse 13 of chapter 3. You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying His commands or trying to show the Lord of Heaven's army that we are sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil get rich, and those who dare uh, God to punish them suffer no harm. So that's the final complaint of the people that they had against God. And it's basically this. Hey, I'm getting nothing out of this. Um, why am I serving God? I'm not getting anything from this. You know, I'm just not getting anything from it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of, a, a, of an episode of one of my favorite shows, Gunsmoke. Really date myself there, don't I? 
But there's an episode in which Chester, you remember Chester? Um, Chester got word that a relative was coming through Dodge and he didn't particularly like this relative and he became, he, he was alert or I mean he was, he was concerned that this relative was going to just take up residence in Dodge and mooch off all the people because evidently this relative was a mooch, okay? And so uh, Chester came up with this idea that, you know, if I can raise enough money, I can just, when he gets to Dodge, I'll just send him packing on to California and, and get him out of my hair. And so he went to, to Marshall Dillon and he got an advance on his salary and he hit up Doc and he hit up Kitty and they, they put in some money. We still didn't have enough money. He knew this and never get this guy out of town. And so he, he, he went to the bank and he says, I want to draw some money out of the bank. And the banker said, well, Chester, you don't have any money in the bank. And, and Chester said, well, what's the use of having a bank if I can't get money from the bank? And the banker said, but you've got to have money in the bank to get money out of the bank. And Chester couldn't understand that. But I'll pay it back, you know. Church is like a bank. You don't get out of it unless you put into it. And if you want to serve God and get something out of it, I mean, if you want to get something out of church, you've got to serve God. Uh, so how are you doing on, on serving in the church? We, we serve God because it's the right thing to do. Not because of what you get out of it, but when you do serve, you get something out of it. Um, so how are we doing in serving God in, in our church? Are you just blowing it off? You know, that's somebody else's job. Or, hey, you know, I did my time. I'm retired now, and, and, and you know, I don't need need to serve anymore. Let the younger people do that. Um, you've heard me say, and some of you are new, and so you haven't heard me say, but some of you have just simply delighted to come and sit and soak in church. That's all I want to do. I'm just going to come and sit and soak. Do you know what happens to a sponge that sits and soaks in a tub of water? What does it eventually do? It sours. So folks, if all you're going to do is come and sit and soak on Sunday morning, you're going to sour. And you know when you sour, what happens? You start stinking. Don't be a stinking Christian. You come and serve. That's why we're here. That's what we're to be doing. Uh, we're here to serve. Now, in the last part of this chapter in Malachi, he's going to differentiate between those complainers and the real, true people of God uh, who truly serve and truly worship God in a way that pleases him. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him. And look at this. And always thought about the honor of his name. Do you ever do that? That's what a true believer should do. They're always thinking about the honor of his name. See, when we do that, it automatically helps us to live better. That I want to bring honor to God's name. Verse 17, they will be my people, says the Lord of heaven's army. On the day when I act in judgment, they will be my own special treasure. I will spare them as a father spares an obedient child. Then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. And then two final words out of chapter 4. First, there's a word concerning those who are faithful to God. Verse 2, 
But for you who fear my name, that is, put reverence in my name, worship me, live for me, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. And then he closes, this is really significant, he closes with a reference concerning the coming of John the baptizer. Verse 5 and 6. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Here, this is significant because here is the last prophet of the Old Testament making reference to the first prophet of the New Testament. There will not be any prophetic word for those several hundred years between the close of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist in the wilderness. Um, that was, that's pretty significant. It forms that bridge between the Old and the New Testament. So there's a lot to digest here in this book of Malachi. It's really a call, folks, for us to, us to examine ourselves. Do you ever do that from time to time? Just take the Word of God and examine yourself. How am I doing? Um, are, are we grieving God's heart through the way that we live? I mean, are we questioning His love? Are we uh, dishonoring His name? Do we find ourselves violating His covenant or twisting God's judgment? Are you robbing God of His tithe? Are you snubbing God's service? Evaluate yourself. See how you're doing in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the Word of God. And I pray that as we look into this, that we would be challenged in different areas of our life of how are we doing on following you and in bringing glory and honor to your name. We want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.